Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Sarah Dowdy. And I'm Dublina Chakraborty. And if you remember, we talked about shipwrecks a little bit at the beginning of the summer. And after we covered them, including the ironclad Civil War era monitor, we started to get some suggestions that really surprised me. They were suggestions for 16th century Korean history. So got to ask, why would a Civil War ship have called to mind 16th century Korea? And that's because Korea is famous for its turtle ships, which are considered by some to be the first ironclads. And the turtle ships were used long, long before the Monitor Merrimack showdown, about 250 years before. And they were used to great effect, too, defensively against Japan, making them quite famous in Korea, but maybe not so well known outside of that country. Yeah, but since it's usually more interesting when a military story is attached to an individual, we were especially won over when listeners like Suwon and Will told us about the famous commander of these fire-breathing turtle ships. Admiral Yi Sun Sin, a national hero sometimes called Korea's Admiral Lord Nelson. Although, like the turtle ships, Yi came long before Nelson did. Yeah, this kind of reminds me of the uh, Joan of Arc comparisons and, and things like that when people are, are compared to a Western figure who lived long after. Yeah, that's a great point. But, but still, if it, if it helps anybody sort of give a comparison for what this guy was like, then I'm all for it. Yes, but before we talk about Admiral Yi, we have to discuss his opponent, the daimyo warrior who unified Japan, and then went looking for a little bit more. Yeah, so backtracking a little bit here, Japan in the 16th century was just a mess of civil wars between these powerful daimyo factions, so uh, local warlords who had their own armies and liked to fight a lot. So born a peasant, this guy named Toyotomi Hideyoshi got involved in these wars and pretty quickly rose to the position of henchman for Oda Nubanaga, who was a general who eventually deposed the shogun. And when Nobunaga died, Hideyoshi succeeded him, even though he couldn't claim the title of shogun for himself because of his low birth status. Nevertheless, he was ostensibly ruling Japan, or at least controlling the military aspects of the country, and he went about unifying it, too, getting all of those daimyo warlords to fall in line. It was just this huge meteoric rise for this kind of obscure warrior initially. Yeah, so once you've unified your country, what's one great way to keep it together? In this case, it was fighting someone else. Hideyoshi believed that he was destined to rule an enormous empire, starting by conquering China, of course, and eventually extending to the Philippines. Unfortunately for Korea, it was in the way of all this. It was in the way of his plan. Japan's invasion didn't start right away, though. At first, Hideyoshi sent envoys to suggest renewed relations between Japan and Korea. Things between the two countries had been pretty strained in the past century due to ceaseless Japanese pirate attacks against Korean port cities. So the Chosun dynasty in Korea was really interested in these opening talks. They were like, "Okay, if you guys want to work it out, we'll we'll hear what you have to say. But the request for relations came with a condition, and that condition was that the Koreans should let the Japanese army pass through on their way 
way to China. But since Korea was a Chinese client state, this was obviously an unacceptable arrangement. Yeah, they weren't going to go lose their ally, China. So no dice with this Japanese plan. Still, though, Korea's king was a little bit worried that there might be some kind of deception going on, that Korea might be in danger itself. And so he sent his own envoys to Japan to try to figure out what Hideyoshi was really up to. And those envoys came back with conflicting reports, some saying nothing's going on, others saying, yeah, he's going to attack. But ultimately, the king decided to make no military preparations for a Japanese invasion. That turned out to be a really bad move because Hideyoshi was getting ready. And on March 23rd, 1592, Japanese troops made landfall, which started the Imjin War, eventually known as the Seven-Year War. And the capital city, which is now, of course, known to us as Seoul, fell only 20 days later. So just a remarkably fast victory, it seemed, for Japan. And it wasn't just that the Korean troops were unprepared, though, that they hadn't expected this Japanese attack and that they were outnumbered. The Japanese army's skill and firepower were really better, too. That's true. The Japanese had well-trained soldiers. Again, remember all those civil wars that we, that they had that we told you about earlier. And they were led by experienced daimyos. They had state-of-the-art weapons, too. They had matchlock firearms, while the Koreans had mostly bows and arrows, plus some cannons. But as quickly as the Korean interior fell, the Japanese Japanese were in for a bit of a surprise when it came to the Navy. So enter Admiral Yi, who had been born in 1545. Against the wishes of his illustrious but impoverished family, he had decided to pursue a military career rather than a literary one. I've never heard of a family encouraging someone to take yeah. a literary career. This Be an is... English major, young Yi. <laughs> exactly. So just a note here, this was kind of ironic since Yi's written accounts and 2,539 diary entries are some of the best sources historians have of this period. So he did go on to become a literary figure, but he pursued the military career more adamantly. And at age 28, he took the military service exam. This just blows me away. He broke his leg during the test. It had a horseback riding portion. And instead of calling it quits there, he amazed everyone by getting up on the other leg and binding the brake with a branch and continuing the test. I guess he didn't pass, though, because it wasn't until four years later that he passed the service exam. And his career didn't exactly take off either. He wasn't a brown noser, and he uh, didn't exactly court favors. And he was actually twice discharged because of false accusations against him. Eventually, though, his, his hard work and his skill got him a promotion motion, and he was appointed the left Navy commander of the Chola province in charge of protecting Korea's southwest coast. And you'll see some variation in that. Sometimes he's the Navy commander of the left Chola province. Um, Not sure about that one. It seems more likely that you'd have a left Navy commander than a left province. Yeah, it sounds strange to refer to the left side of something. Somebody can let us know about that, though, if you want to. He really got the chance to shine in this position. It was pirate central in this area, so he started to build up his navy. He established a new administrative system, better weapons, better discipline, and most famously, better ships. Though he's often credited with their creation, Korea had turtle ships, those ships we mentioned earlier, or kobuksun, before Admiral Yi. It's hard to know exactly what they were like, 
though there are reconstructions based on best guesses. We really just have Admiral Yi and one of his nephews' descriptions of them, but basically this is what they were like. They were multi-decked vessels with two or three floors covered by a wooden roof curved like a turtle's back. So their flat bottoms meant that they could turn on a dime and the ships could switch between sails, which were usually lowered during battle, or oarsmen. Oarsmen were on the lower level and fighters would be above. Yeah, and he worked to fortify the existing turtle design. So he armed them to the teeth with cannons and bombs and portholes for flaming arrows to be shot out of. He placed dragon heads on the prows of the ships. And this is just awesome. A cannonball could be fired through the dragon's mouth or sulfurous smoke to sort of obscure the movements and just to look really scary. A lot of this was kind of an intimidation game. He reduced the number of oarsmen from 20 to 16, and he also lined the wooden roof with iron spikes so that when enemy soldiers tried to board the ship, they would get a spike through the foot because they'd be covered during battle with with mats. You wouldn't know that there were going to be all those spikes on board. Um, no hop-ons onto the turtle ships. And some also suggest that he armored the ships with iron plates, so iron plates on the side, on the turtle shell, and that would, of course, make them the first ironclads. But Heidi Holtz, in an article for Naval History, writes that the contemporary evidence for this is pretty slim. Definitely had the spikes, maybe not so much the iron plates. Here's a description of this from Yi's own diary. He says, I had a turtle ship specially built with a dragon's head from whose mouth we could fire our cannons and with iron spikes on its back to pierce the enemy's feet when they tried to board. Because it is in the shape of a turtle, our men can look from inside, but the enemy cannot look in from the outside. It moves so swiftly that it can plunge into the midst of even many hundreds of enemy vessels in any weather to attack them with cannonballs and flamethrowers. And that was the truth. He really could just kind of sneak in there with these ships. But the turtle ships, despite being powerful, were especially effective in the hands of Yi. He knew how to use them. And the first major naval engagement took place May 7th through 8th, 1592, at Okpo. And Admiral Yi used this technique where he sort of enveloped the Japanese who were busy raiding the town and were a little late coming back to their boats. And that technique he eventually developed into something called the stork swing or crane formation, just kind of coming around like a V to to get the enemy from both sides. And he ended up destroying t- 26 out of 50 Japanese ships on the first day alone of fighting there. To contrast with that, only one Korean sailor was wounded, supposedly minorly wounded. So a huge success for the, the first naval engagement. And those successes just continued. It was the first of 10 major naval victories that year. In the next five battles, for example, the Japanese lost 83 ships to Korea's 11 sailors. The two battles after that, which took place at Hansan Island, resulted in a Japanese loss of 101 ships to Korea's 19 men. Then next came the Battle of Pusanpo, where Admiral Yi and his fleet sank 100 ships. So the 10th victory earned him a promotion. Finally, after all of this, <laughs> he got promoted to Supreme Naval Commander of the three southern provinces. 
So it's important here to understand something about the Japanese Navy, though. It tells us why it fared so poorly, but also about Admiral Yi's naval genius. Yeah, we're going to make some excuses here, basically. The Japanese Navy was mustered on the command of the daimyos. So they'd get an order to raise a certain number of men and provide a certain number of ships and then carry that order out. And you'd end up with a motley crew of men and of ships, a bunch of different ships. Not all of them would be war-ready, for instance. Some of them were tiny, and they had these little square, hard-to-maneuver sails. Some required massive numbers of oarsmen. So instead of having your guys fighting, you have all these dudes below deck rowing. And then some were large, but they weren't very well armed because they were built of lighter wood than the Koreans used. And then finally, some would just corrode because they had iron fittings, and the Koreans used wooden nails instead, which supposedly would expand in the water to make the ship even tighter and stronger instead of corroding. So, yeah, definitely a a problem here with the ships, but also a problem with the men, because as we keep mentioning, all that Civil War land combat made really strong land fighters out hand of to hand. the Japanese. Yeah. So they were really more experienced fighting in that style. And their preferred technique for naval battles was to board an enemy ship and just start fighting, just like you were on land. So it was a really important move that Admiral Yi avoided this. He would keep the Japanese off of his ships and keep his men away from that deadly hand-to-hand combat, both with the spikes and the turtle ships, but also that great cannon power, just being able to stay far enough away from the Japanese ships that they, they couldn't board the Korean ones. And to add to matters, the Japanese Navy was controlled by several senior officers who, instead of really working together, they really all each individually wanted glory rather than cooperation. So there wasn't one commander over them. It was all no master these, plan. Yeah, it was several commanders fighting to just sort of be the best one. Too many equals. So unfortunately for the Japanese, though, their invasion really did require a certain amount of naval success because the troops who had so easily taken over the countryside and Seoul really needed supply and communication lines, and they were hoping to get those via boat. So Admiral Yi and his Navy put an end to both of those, and you end up with all these Japanese troops who are isolated without their their lines. So with those poor supply lines, a growing Korean guerrilla movement in the countryside, and the eventual involvement of the Chinese Ming army as a Korean ally, the Japanese were eventually forced to a stalemate, and they had to withdraw from most of Korea in 1593. But when peace talks started between Japan and China, excluding Korea now, Hideyoshi thought he had won for some reason. He made outrageous demands of China, but somehow, maybe because of court intrigue, maybe you know more about that, Sarah. It's believed to have been court intrigue that just sort of threw his demands out the window. They never made it to the Ming emperor. And instead, the emperor ended up with a very different peace proposal. And after a few years of delay, Chinese emissaries returned to Japan with the Ming emperor's reply to this falsified treaty. And his reply was that Japan would be recognized as a tributary state of China. So major miscommunications here. Each side clearly thought that they had won. Hideyoshi is furious. And immediately it is back to war again. Japan is invading Korea. 
The second invasion of Korea started August 27, 1597, but this time around, the Japanese knew that it would be best to get Admiral Yi out of the way. So they had learned something from their experience before, and they were going to do something about it. So a Japanese double agent planted information in the Korean court about a Japanese attack. Admiral Yi was ordered to a specific attack location based on this information, but he refused to go. So why did he refuse to go? Well, for one thing, he was suspicious of foul play. So he was pretty smart here. And he knew that the area was filled with sunken rocks, so he knew it would be dangerous for his men. So King Sunjo wasn't very happy about this, and he actually had Admiral Yi tortured and then even ordered his execution as a traitor and a coward only backing down at the suggestion of his advisors. Who pointed out that this man was a great Korean hero and had helped them defeat or at least get rid of the Japanese last go-round. So instead, Yi was still punished, but in a different way. He was demoted to a common soldier and replaced by Won Kyun, who had a questionable naval record. So sure enough, the next Korean naval engagement was a total disaster. Won Kyun took the entire Korean Navy out to meet a Japanese armada of 500 to 1,000 ships while a storm was approaching. And his men were exhausted and tired, too. Twenty of their ships were sunk before the Koreans could withdraw to a nearby island, which unfortunately was filled with Japanese troops. So 400 Koreans were killed. The Japanese then attacked again and destroyed 200 more ships, which basically helped them secure lines in the southern part of the country. Get those supply lines, finally. So after this total disaster, Yi got his old job back. It's lucky for Korea that he was not actually executed. He was able to come back to work, and he started building up the remaining battered ships. And after fighting off a few attacks with this tiny fleet, he set up a new home base on an island separated from the mainland by the raging Myeongnyang Strait, which is also known as the Roaring Channel. And this was really the only advantage he could rely on. He knew that this would be an incredibly difficult channel or strait to cross and that he would have some defense there for his tiny, tiny fleet that was left. So there in October 1597, he took on 133 Japanese ships with his 12 remaining ships and lured them into that rapid strait before attacking them with heavy cannon fire. So the Japanese couldn't retreat. They couldn't get out of the way. And 31 of their ships sank before the fleet could finally escape from the strait, retreat. And it was a stunning victory for Admiral Yi and Korea. And it's considered one of the most impressive naval victories ever, even though, once again, it's probably not too well known outside of Korea or outside of naval historian circles. So this defeat was bad news for the Japanese, too. It meant that they couldn't resupply their army that was headed toward Seoul. And it was also demoralizing. I mean, how embarrassed to be beaten by this fleet of 12 ships um, so devastatingly. So by early 1598, reinforcements from Ming China helped restore the Korean Navy. And this was another point in Admiral Yi's favor. He worked really well with his Ming counterpart. The Japanese land forces couldn't survive without their supply lines, partly because they had wrecked the countryside so badly the first go around. So they began a slow retreat, hoping to hold on to at least some of their gains. But when Hideyoshi died in September 1598 and the Japanese infighting began again, the withdrawal was sped up. So during the Nordyang Sea Battle in December 1598, which was the last naval battle to evacuate Japanese troops, Admiral Yi was killed by a stray bullet, which I just think is so... 
Yeah. Sad. It's a bummer. After he survived all those battles and the almost being executed, over. the war is over, and then he's killed. You know, he'd probably get like a nice house or something for his trouble. I don't know. Some kind of reward. I would hope so. <laughs> At least a break, a vacation. So, yeah, that's that's too bad. But we have one more sort of theoretical thing to discuss a little bit. We mentioned Heidi Holtz's article for Naval History earlier on, and there's one more interesting point to raise. She writes that military historians like to debate which is more important in determining the outcome of an armed conflict, technology or genius. And the story of Admiral Yi really makes a case for both because there is technology, the turtle ships, and there is genius, Admiral Yi, of course. But this case is especially interesting because we have that failed Wan Kion interlude where the replacement admiral has the same ships, he has the same cannons, he has the same men, but he makes poor decisions and allowed the Japanese within range so they could board and fight man-to-man like they like to. He attacked in unfavorable conditions, whereas Yi, on the other hand, won every single one of his naval battles, even when he had a fleet of 12 ships and there were no turtle ships included. So I kind of like this speculation, and I guess that's what military historians really like to do, to look for these case studies to Mm -hmm. illustrate their arguments. But I mean, I I think it does make a good case for for both, but maybe suggest that in in this case, at least, you can have technology, but unless you have genius, too, it's not going to do you much good. Yeah, Japan would have conquered Korea and possibly gone on from there to China and the Philippines, where they would have been up against none other than the naval power of Spain fresh off its armada defeat if it hadn't been for Yi. Well, and that's kind of a that's kind of a history path less traveled, I guess. Mm-hmm. You could. Speculation. Yes, yeah, speculative completely. history. Disclaimer here. Exactly. So, um you know, let us know if if you have any thoughts on that, what what that um, alternate history might have been like. And I guess that's probably a good time to go ahead and transition to listener mail. So our first item for discussion is actually a listener mail present. And I was amazed when I opened a box to find a real beaver king inside. I mean, how how can we describe him, Dubluna? He is fuzzy and adorable. He wears a cloak, like a plaid cloak, like the and a crown. James Strang version of the Beaver King. He has a mm-hmm. crown. Oh, and my favorite part is that he has a acorn-topped scepter, like a real acorn on top. And he has those beaver teeth. He's really cute. So we got that from Colleen, and she wrote a little note to include with His Majesty. She said, this thank you note is long overdue. However, it took quite some time to wrangle the real king of Beaver Island and get him into the box. Although my mom and I thoroughly enjoyed your podcast and learning more about my grandfather's boyhood home, the little guy in clothes was a bit miffed that James Strang's claim to his throne was brought up again. (laughs) So I like that. And we'll try to not mention James Strang around this new Beaver King. We'll do our best. And I'm just so glad that's what it was when Sarah texted me because I was out of the office and said, (laughs) we got a real King of Beaver Island. And I was like, hmm, what could she be talking about? So it was a delightful surprise to come back to. Well, I was here uh, on a Friday afternoon and not too many people were around and I just wanted to show it to somebody. (laughs) I went around like looking for for anyone to... Who could appreciate it. Who could appreciate the real King of Beaver Island. 
So thank you very much to Colleen and to your mother. We will take good care of him and we'll, we'll keep mentions of James Strang to a minimum. Our next email comes from Jennifer and she wrote, I've been hooked on your podcast for a few months now and listen for hours on end while shooting in archaeological shovel test. She also describes that as GPSing, quote, if that's even a word. She goes on to say, my coworkers always know where I am by keeping an ear open for your podcast. I have my iPod on speaker to alert bears to my presence. <laughs> we have to address that really quick. I'm kind of amazed that we are like audio bear spray. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm I'm glad. I'm glad that our voices are so loud and startling as to keep <laughs> the bears away. I think if we ever go, I don't know, hiking in this area or something, the bears will hear us though and be like, "Oh my god, it's it's one of them again. You know, they never stop talking. Um, and then we get eaten. Oh, no, like they would take revenge on us or something. Well, hopefully it's just to alert bears to to her presence and they don't dislike us. The bears don't dislike us. But uh, Jennifer goes on to write, on a controversial archaeological theme, have you considered researching the Kensington runestone? It engenders endless conversations and stories and potential bouts of fisticuffs in archaeological and geological communities. So thank you, Jennifer, for your archaeological controversy suggestion and um, beware of the bears. Yeah. So if you have any more fisticuffs-inducing ideas for us, please email us. Our address is historypodcast at howstuffworks.com, or you can look us up on Facebook or on Twitter at Mist in History. And if you want to learn a little bit more about shipwrecks, which is loosely related to what we talked about today, you can look up an article called How to Survive a Shipwreck on our homepage by visiting www.howstuffworks.com. Be sure to check out our new video podcast, Stuff from the Future. Join House to Fork staff as we explore the most promising and perplexing possibilities of tomorrow. The House to Fork's iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes. 